On the 16th of April, 1850, in a small house in London, England, an elderly woman fell asleep in her bed. She never woke up. She was taken away to be buried at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Chelsea, and her children left to carry on the business she left behind. Today, her name is splashed in gleaming gold metal and bold black paint across the fronts of buildings all over the world, a name synonymous with entertainment and oddity. Madame Tussauds is a household name, the famed wax museum that boasts a wide collection of celebrities and famous figures from history both recent and far-flung. But not many know the story of one woman's lifelong labor in the field of waxworks. From humble beginnings in France, to surviving a revolution, to wandering Europe, the real Madame Tussauds became the preeminent wax creator of her time. But before all that, she was Anna Maria Grossholtz. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, this is Little Slights, where I discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the woman in the wax. Anna Maria Grossholtz, known as just Marie, was born December 1, 1761 in Strasbourg, France. Her father, Joseph Grossholtz, died before she was born, fighting in the Seven Years' War, so she was raised solely by her mother, Anne-Marie Walder. Things didn't quite pan out in France for Miss Walder, and when Marie was six, her mother moved them to Bern, Switzerland, and a few years later joined the household of Philippe Curtius. Curtius was a dedicated anatomist, and to help him understand his subject better, he had become a wax modeler of no small talent. When he was joined by Miss Walder and her daughter, he had already created the oldest known waxwork we have at this time, a bust of Louis XV's infamous mistress, Madame du Barry, made in 1765. Curtius was kind to his new housekeeper and her young daughter, and they grew close to each other to the point that Marie called Curtius her uncle. When he returned to Paris in 1766, both mother and daughter accompanied him. Soon, Marie had become his little apprentice, studying under him to learn the art of wax modeling. It wasn't all she learned from him. In 1770, Curtius held an exhibition called the Salon de Cire, or the Wax Salon, in Paris. He was successful enough that he was able to open a second one in 1776 in the larger Palais Royal. 1782 saw him debut his second exhibition on Boulevard de Temple, the Caverne de Grand Valeur, or the Cavern of the Grand Thieves, or Den of Thieves, an exhibition which might have planted the seed in young Marie Grossholt's brain that would someday sprout into her Chamber of Horrors. Curtius had passed on not just his knowledge and skill, but a sense of theatricality and drama. Marie worked at her own creations while Curtius held his exhibitions. Her first work ever was a wax portrait of the philosopher Voltaire, made in 1777. He was friendly with Curtius and agreed to sit for the little apprentice he would pat on the cheek when he saw her. This was followed over the years by other figures, as well as portraits, of famous figures in France at the time, such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Benjamin Franklin. According to Marie, she had sat with all three once at dinner, listening along with Franklin as the two philosophers debated. Waxwork was not just art in those times. To have a portrait or figure made of yourself was a mark of celebrity, money, a perceived authenticity, or a combination of all three. Through Curtius, Marie frequently rubbed elbows with the rich and famous upper class of Paris, which might explain how Marie got herself a rather prestigious part-time gig. In her memoirs, Marie would claim that in 1780, at 19 years of age, she got herself a job teaching the art of votive-making, her pupil, the sister of King Louis XVI, Madame Elizabeth. 
Marie later wrote that she did well enough that she was invited to live in the Palace de Versailles itself, and was privy to many private conversations between princess, king, and court while she worked, though there is no contemporary evidence to back this up. If it was a truth, it would be one she came to regret. The French people's frustration with their monarchy and upper class, as well as the ministers informing the unpopular policy that had been starving the lower classes of both food and money, boiled over near the end of the decade. On July 12, 1789, a mob broke into Curtius's exhibition and stole the busts of two men, revolutionary sympathizer the Duc d'Orleans and the finance minister, Jacques Necker. The two men had recently been removed from their positions in the government in a move that made the public furious. Curtius would later write that they had wanted the king, but he had to refuse them, as Louis XVI's bust was too cumbersome. The other two busts, however, he handed over himself. The crowd marched the bust through Paris, chanting and screaming, and were soon fired upon, making it the first real bloodshed of the encroaching turmoil, though the event was quickly overshadowed by what happened two days later, the storming of the Bastille prison. The French Revolution had begun. The revolution was not all terrors and decapitations from the start. The men who had sparked the flames of liberté, égalité, and fraternité were genuinely interested in making France a better place, and had the support of the people behind them. And Marie's mentor, Curtius, had, at least, gotten on the bandwagon fairly quickly once he saw the tide beginning to change, quickly endorsing the actions of the revolutionary protests publicly, in sharp contrast to the royalist overtones of his exhibits, and even acting as captain for the citizen army. Marie, likewise, did not feel as if she was in immediate danger, having not even been frightened by the mob appearing on her doorstep for the busts earlier that year. Though she was under scrutiny, due to her former occupation as teacher and confidant to a princess, and her association with Curtius. In fact, the revolution found them quite useful. Waxworks could be a brilliant medium for pseudo-journalism in those times. It could keep up with what was happening much faster than painting or sculpting and Curtius and Marie's skills as chroniclers could be put to great use by the revolution. Curtius was becoming more and more involved with the Jacobins, an influential political club of the revolution, so the running of the Salon fell to Marie most of the time. It was hard keeping up with who was popular, as it changed from day to day. The wax portrait that everyone crowed over one week might have you on the scaffold the next. Marie was compelled to follow not just the whims of the public, but also the orders of the convention to create death masks for the victims of the guillotine. However, the first of her notable masks came not from the blade, but a bathtub. On July 13, 1793, she was dragged to a flat in Paris and told to make a death mask for the cooling corpse she found in the upstairs bath. Jean-Paul Marat, once living idol of the Jacobins, now a victim of assassination. In the coming months, Marie Tussaud would later tell enraptured audiences, she proved her loyalty to the revolution in blood, and wax. She created the death masks for Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, waiting at the foot of the guillotine, beginning her work before their bodies were even cool. I had a king's blood on my hands, she would say. The image she crafted is all likely a myth Marie created to sell the authenticity of her work. But what she made was very real. The man she used to listen to, teasing his little sister during her lessons, now merely another bust to hang in her workshop. The violence in Paris began to grow worse, and counter-revolutionary movements in the countryside threatened civil war for the entire country. 
The first warning bell was the September Massacres of 1792, an event in which revolutionary forces like the Sansculottes and Guardsmen killed nearly 1,500 prisoners around Paris out of fear they might join a royalist army if it attacked. Soon, the cacophony would grow to become a full-blown reign of terror. Those revolutionaries, so idealistic, so bold, had long since grown fearful and paranoid, eating their own and turning to methods that bordered on tyrannical to see the France they had envisioned become reality. After some time of flying under the radar, former royal teacher and wax modeler Marie Grossholtz was now back under the microscopic lens of the nascent Committee of Public Safety. And the evidence they found against her and Curtius, however spurious it was, was too much to ignore. Sometime in the late spring of 1794, she and Curtius were arrested for being royalists and thrown in jail. She was joined in the Carmes prison by a certain highborn lady named Josephine de Beauharnais, who would, in a little over ten years' time, be known as Josephine, Empress Consort of the French, wife of Napoleon Bonaparte. The two women waited together and prayed. One day, a man came in to shave Marie's head, clearing the way for a clean strike from the guillotine. She was so close to death, but near the last moment, Marie would say, she was saved by an angel of a sorts. Actor Jean-Marie Collot d'Herbois had a close association with Curtius, which may have saved the wax modeler as well as Marie, but the 2,000 people d'Herbois had murdered in Lyon did not have the benefit of such ties. Still, never was the phrase beggars can't be choosers more apt than right then. Marie and her mentor were released and went straight back to creating their grisly works. In the fall of 1794, she was called upon to make one final mask for the committee, that of their former leader, Maximilien Robespierre, who had been killed by the very system he had helped create. Things did not immediately fall apart once Robespierre was gone, and executions would continue for quite some time, but this violent era of the revolution, for all intents and purposes, was over. It was not the only thing that ended that year. Marie's longtime mentor, Philippe Curtius, passed away in 1794, leaving his vast collection of waxworks to Marie. With these, her experience, and her own work, an idea began brewing in Marie's mind. But all of that had to be put on hold, for she had fallen in love. Francois Tussaud was a civil engineer from Macon, and, given the state of France after the Revolution, probably had a bright future ahead of him in his career. He was an attractive prospect, and the two were married just one year later. The marriage started out well enough, surviving the hardship of losing a daughter not long after birth and going on to raise two healthy boys, but tensions soon began to grow. Francois, it turned out, was a bit of a deadbeat and turned reliant on Marie and her money. By the turn of the century, the Tussauds had dissolved almost entirely. By 1802, when Britain and France signed the Treaty of Amiens that ended hostilities after the last of the French Revolutionary Wars, she was gone to faraway London with her son Joseph, leaving Francois and Francois Jr. in France. She continued to write letters to her husband for the next several years, updating him on the progress with her show and little Nini, as she called Joseph, but the couple would never see each other again. Marie wasn't just escaping a failing marriage, though, but pursuing a business opportunity. While in London, she showed off her collection of portraits and eventually gained an invitation from Paul Philidor, a stage magician and pioneer of the Phantasmagoria lantern shows. Marie accepted and began showing her portraits and some waxworks at the Lyceum Theater. The play of life and death in Phantasmagoria complemented Marie's works well, offering real, three-dimensional figures highlighted in grand, ostentatious displays of candles and mirrors amongst the play of light and shadow of Philidor's works. Despite that, 
This venture was not a financial success, and Marie soon left Elysium after less than a year showing there. She next traveled to Edinburgh, the first to bring waxworks to the people of the Scottish capital with her exhibition at Bernard's Room on Thistle Street. And so, for the next several years, Marie Tussaud did her best to bring a little of France to the United Kingdom, because Marie was no longer able to return to France. Napoleon Bonaparte had seized control of her native country, and the Napoleonic Wars prevented most people from traveling from Britain to France. Even if Marie wanted to return, she was trapped. Sentimentality had yet to drag Marie down yet, though, and rather than wilt, she wandered, taking her show of art and waxworks on the road across the British Isles. She went from theater to theater, letting audiences ooh and awe over the realistic depictions of people they had only ever heard about, and telling them tales of her time in revolutionary France, all for the low, low price of one sixpence. In contrast to Philippe Curtius's Salon de Cire, an elegant display that had appealed to the 1770s nobility of Paris, Marie showed the United Kingdom death and the horrors of violence wrought by the revolution, which played well to anti-revolutionary audiences. In 1822, she and Joseph were joined by her other son, Francois, who began helping his estranged mother run her booming business. The tour lasted 33 years. 33 years, carting hundreds of paintings and waxworks across four countries. But the long years paid off, and by 1835, Madame Tussauds and Sons was popular enough that Marie could permanently rent out a space on Baker Street in London, part of the Baker Street Bazaar, to host her exhibition. Madame Tussauds wanted its audience to feel like they were standing in amongst the living. She always phrased her figures as being, quote, taken from life in her catalogs. She very much wanted the observers to do more than watch, but be there. Waxworks were staged so the audience felt as if they were peering directly at that moment of history that the person existed in. With figures so real and so present, it almost felt as if they were looking back. But the main draw of her exhibition was no doubt her Chamber of Horrors where she first housed her famous death heads of Maximilien Robespierre and many other architects of the revolution. Drawing inspiration from her fallen mentor Curtius and his den of thieves, the chamber showed busts of those, quote, villains during the French Revolution, soon joined by several serial killers and criminals of then-modern-day England. If the rest of Madame Tussauds wanted you to be a part of the lives of the real people depicted in wax, the chamber, at least in its first incarnations, had no such sympathy littered with broken, wounded bodies forever trapped in death. For this reason, the chamber was always seen as a heightened experience apart from the regular exhibition, not suitable for children or those sensitive to shocks. In Marie's time, it cost an extra sixpence just to get in. The chamber would later become notable for not only including criminals, but also the methods in which said criminals conducted their crimes and were executed for them. Nooses, electric chairs, bathtubs, guillotines. As time passed, the Chamber of Horrors became almost as educational as it was spectacle, a look into the past of criminal justice. It would reach its zenith in the 1890s, long after Marie was gone, but everything was built on what Marie had started. What she had learned from Philippe Curtius, staging, theatricality, and a good story, and what she had been taught by the revolution, the grim appeal of both violence and punishment along with the lessons she had picked up from Philidor and the tastes of modern audiences, came together to form Madame Tussauds. Starting then, and for several decades on, her catalogs, guides to the many waxworks found in her museums, would greet you with this excerpt from William Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. Eye, nose, lip. 
the tricks of his frown, his forehead, nay, the valley, the pretty dimples of his chin and cheek, his smiles, the very mold and frame of hand, nail, finger, would you not deem it breathed, and that those veins did verily bear blood? The very life seems warm upon her lip, the fixture of her eyes hath motion in it. Come into Madame Tussauds, she was saying, and see life reborn. Marie's personal life was much quieter. She never divorced her husband, but the last real contact she had with him was probably in 1841, when he came asking for money, as he had for several years. Enraged, Marie's sons informed their father that he had no rights to any of Marie's money and to cease contacting her. After that incident, she drew up a will ensuring everything would go to her sons so Francois Tussaud would get nothing. She was leaving the business in good hands. Joseph and Francois, or Francis, now that he was in England, had been assisting her running Madame Tussaud and Sons for years now, and would soon take over full-time as she got older. Francis, in particular, had become a talented wax modeler in his own right, and would go on to have a very successful career as chief artist for the museum. Marie wrote her memoirs in 1838, and continued to paint for the rest of her life. In 1842, she painted her own self-portrait, which you can still see today hanging at the entrance of the original Madame Tussauds in London. She died in her sleep in her home on April 16, 1850, at 88 years old. She was survived by her two sons and multiple grandchildren, many of whom would continue to own and operate Madame Tussauds for the next several decades. She was buried at St. Mary's Catholic Church in the Chelsea District of London. You can find, if you look for it, a memorial plaque inscribed with her name along with that of her family's, just to the right of the church's nave. As Marie had made it her life's work to recreate the faces of the lost in a medium that could live forever, so did her exhibition make her name eternal, too. By 1883, the museum had grown so large and the rental costs so high that her grandson, Joseph Randall, moved Madame Tussauds out of the Baker Street Bazaar and into its permanent home on Marlebone Road. Madame Tussauds reopened in 1884 to great fanfare and success. Unfortunately, due to miscalculations on Joseph's part, the business had to be sold to others outside of the family. The new owners took care of Madame Tussauds, however, and soon were adding new waxworks to the collection. On March 18, 1925, after years of peaceful, steady business, much of Madame Tussauds was damaged when the upper floors of the building caught a flame. Wax sculptures of politicians, kings, queens, sports and film stars were melted and destroyed in a bonfire of the celebrity that took an hour and a half to extinguish. Onlookers would later report that they could hear the waxworks sizzling in the heat. No one was hurt, but much of the building was destroyed by both fire and water damage. The exhibition was closed for three years, but just like its namesake, Madame Tussauds couldn't be kept down. The owners reopened for business three years later, complete with a new cinema and restaurant. The cinema, and 352 unfortunate head molds, only had a short second life, as Madame Tussauds would suffer a near-direct hit during the German Blitz of London in 1940. The building, and the business, would survive the war, and the post-war years. In a fitting echo to the life of its creator, after years of hardship it would begin to blossom and flourish, opening up a second location in Amsterdam in 1972, then Las Vegas in 1990, and branching into Asia with its Shanghai opening in 2006. Madame Tussauds is now an international brand, with 21 locations operating across the globe and more to be opened someday soon. They are largely known today for their celebrity wax figures, regularly unveiling new waxworks every year. 
In her lifetime, Marie Tussaud made some 400 waxworks. Many of them were destroyed in the double whammy of the fire and the blitz, but some still remain. Most remarkably, Philippe Curtius's Madame du Barry still exists, standing now, or lounging as she is, as the oldest waxwork in the world. As for Marie, if you look, you can still find her guillotined Robespierre perched upon its spike, as well as her King George III staring back at you from his spot against the wall. The men may be gone, but their faces remain. Perfectly preserved, masterfully crafted, and immortal. A bit like the woman who created them. Behind the calculated fakeness in Madame Tussauds, there was the reality of Marie Grossholtz. The child of a single mother, the apt pupil to her Swiss mentor. An artist, a prisoner, the company of corpses, and the speaker for ghosts. Innovative and dogged, with a gift for showmanship, her work captivated thousands. And now, I hope, at least a little, she has captivated you.